Chapter Twenty One of An Old Man's Love by Anthony Trollope. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Green Park. He asked whether Mr. John Gordon was within, and in two minutes found himself standing in the hall with that hero of romance. Mr. Whittlestaff told himself, as he looked at the man, that he was such a hero as ought to be happy in his love, whereas of himself he was conscious of a personal appearance which no girl could be expected to adore. He thought too much of his personal appearance generally, complaining to himself that it was mean, whereas in regard to Mary Laurie it may be said that no such idea had ever entered her mind. It was just because he had come first, she would have said if asked. And the he alluded to would have been John Gordon. He had come first, and therefore I had learned to love him. It was thus that Mary Laurie would have spoken. But Mr. Whittlestaff, as he looked up into John Gordon's face, felt that he himself was mean. You have got my letter, Mr. Gordon? Yes, I got it last night. I have come up to London because there is something that I want to say to you. It is something that I can't very well put up into a letter, and therefore I have taken the trouble to come to town. As he said this, he endeavored, no doubt, to assert his own dignity by the look which he assumed. Nor did he intend that Mr. Gordon should know anything of the struggle which he had endured. But Mr. Gordon knew as well what Mr. Whittlestaff had to say as did Mr. Whittlestaff himself. He had turned the matter over in his own mind since the letter had reached him, and was aware that there could be no other cause for seeing him which could bring Mr. Whittlestaff up to London. But a few days since he had made an appeal to Mr. Whittlestaff, an appeal which might certainly require much thought for its answer and here was Mr. Whittlestaff with his reply. It could not have been made quicker. It was thus that John Gordon had thought of it, as he had turned Mr. Whittlestaff's letter over in his mind. The appeal had been made readily enough. The making of it had been easy. The words to be spoken had come quickly, and without the necessity for a moment's premeditation. He had known it all, and from a full heart the mouth speaks. But was it to have been expected that a man so placed as had been Mr. Whittlestaff should be able to give his reply with equal celerity? He, John Gordon, had seen at once on reaching Croker's Hall the state in which things were. Almost hopelessly he had made his appeal to the man who had her promise. Then he had met the man at Mr. Hall's house, and hardly a word had passed between them. What word could have been expected? Montague Blake, with all his folly, had judged rightly in bringing them together. When he received the letter, John Gordon had remembered that last word which Mr. Whittlestaff had spoken to him in the squire's hall. He had thought of the appeal, and had resolved to give an answer to it. It was an appeal which required an answer. He had turned it over in his mind, and had at last told himself what the answer should be. John Gordon had discovered all that when he received the letter, and it need hardly be said that his feelings in regard to Mr. Whittlestaff were very much kinder than those of Mr. Whittlestaff to him. 
"'Perhaps you wouldn't mind coming out into the street?' said Mr. Whittlestaff. "'I can't say very well what I've got to say in here.' "'Certainly,' said Gordon. "'I will go anywhere.' "'Let's go into the park. It is green there, and there is some shade among the trees.' Then they went out of the club into Pall and Mr. Whittlestaff walked on ahead without a word. "'No, we will not go down there,' he said, as he passed the entrance into St. James Park by Marlborough House, and led the way through St. James Palace into the Green Park. "'We'll go on till we come to the trees. There are seats there, unless the people have occupied them all. One can't talk here under the blazing sun. At least I can't.' Then he walked on at a rapid pace, wiping his brow as he did so. "'Yes, there's a seat. I'll be hanged if that man isn't going to sit down upon it. What a beast he is! No, I can't sit down on a seat that another man is occupying. I don't want anyone to hear what I've got to say. There. Two women have gone a little further on.' Then he hurried to the vacant bench and took possession of it. It was placed among the thick trees which gave a perfect shade on the north side of the park, and had Mr. Whittlestaff searched all London through, he could not have found a more pleasant spot in which to make his communication. "'This will do,' said he. "'Very nicely indeed,' said John Gordon. "'I couldn't talk about absolutely private business in the hall of the club, you know.' I could have taken you into a private room, Mr. Whittlestaff, had you wished it. With everybody coming in and out, just as they pleased? I don't believe in private rooms in London clubs. What I've got to say can be said better sub dio. I suppose you know what it is that I've got to talk about. Hardly, said John Gordon. But that is not exactly true. I think I know but I am not quite sure of it. On such a subject I should not like to make a surmise unless I were confident. It's about Miss Lorry. I suppose so. What makes you suppose that? said Whittlestaff sharply. You told me that you were sure I should know. So I am, quite sure. You came all the way down to Alresford to see her, if you spoke the truth, you came all the way home from the diamond fields with the same object. I certainly spoke the truth, Mr. Whittlestaff. Then what's the good of your pretending not to know? I have not pretended. I merely said that I could not presume to put the young lady's name into your mouth until you had uttered it yourself. There could be no other subject of conversation between you and me of which I was aware. "'You had spoken to me about her,' said Mr. Whittlestaff. "'No doubt I had. "'When I found that you had given her a home, "'and had made yourself, as it were, a father to her, "'I had not made myself her father, nor yet her mother. "'I had loved her, as you professed to do. "'My profession is at any rate true. "'I dare say. "'You may or you mayn't. "'I at any rate know nothing about it.' Why otherwise should I have come home and left my business in South Africa? I think you may take it for granted that I love her. I don't care tuppence whether you do or don't, said Mr. Whittlestaff. It's nothing to me whom you love. 
i should have been inclined to say at first sight that a man groping in the dirt for diamonds wouldn't love any one and even if you did though you might break your heart and die it would be nothing to me had you done so i should not have heard of you nor should i have wished to hear of you there was an incivility in all this of which john gordon felt that he was obliged to take some notice there was a want of courtesy in the man's manner rather than his words which he could not quite pass by although he was most anxious to do so i dare say not said he but here i am and here also is miss lorry i had said what i had to say down at alresford and of course it is for you now to decide what is to be done i have never supposed that you would care personally for me you needn't be so conceited about yourself i don't know that i am said gordon except that a man cannot but be a little conceited who has won the love of mary Laurie. you think it impossible that i should have done so at any rate i did it before you had seen her though i may be conceited i am not more conceited for myself than you are for yourself had i not known her you would probably have engaged her affections i had known her and you are aware of the result but it is for you to decide miss lorry thinks that she owes you a debt which she is bound to pay if you exact it exact it exclaimed mr whittlestaff there is no question of exacting john gordon shrugged his shoulders i say there is no question of exacting the word should not have been used she has my full permission to choose as she may think fit and she knows that she has it what right have you to speak to me of exacting mr whittlestaff had now talked himself into such a passion and was apparently so angry at the word which his companion had used that john gordon began to doubt whether he did in truth know the purpose for which the man had come to london could it be that he had made the journey merely with the object of asserting that he had the power of making this girl his wife and of proving his power by marrying her what is it that you wish mr whittlestaff he asked wish what business have you to ask after my wishes but you know what my wishes are very well i will not pretend to keep them in the dark she came to my house and i soon learned to desire that she should be my wife if i know what love is i loved her if i know what love is i do love her still she is all the world to me i have no diamonds to care for i have no rich minds to occupy my heart i am not eager in the pursuit of wealth i had lived a melancholy lonely life till this young woman had come to my table till i had felt her sweet hand upon mine till she had hovered around me covering everything with bright sunshine then i asked her to be my wife and she told me of you she told you of me yes she told me of you of you who might then have been dead for aught she knew and when i pressed her she said that she would think of you always she said so yes that she would think of you always but she did not say that she would always love you and in the same breath she promised to be my wife i was contented and yet not quite contented why should she think of you always but i believed that it would not be so 
I thought that if I were good to her, I should overcome her. I knew that I should be better to her than you would be. Why should I not be good to her? There is an old saying of a young man's slave and an old man's darling. She would at any rate have been my darling. It might be that she would have been your slave. My fellow workmen in all things. You think so now, but the man always becomes the master. If you groveled in the earth for diamonds, she would have to look for them amidst the mud and the slime. I have never dreamed of taking her to the diamond fields. It would have been so in all other pursuits. She would have had none that she had not chosen, said John Gordon. How am I to know that? How am I to rest assured that the world would be smooth to her if she were your creature? I am not assured. I do not know. Who can tell, as you say? Can I promise her a succession of joys if she be my wife? She is not one who will be likely to look for such a life as that. She will know that she must take the rough and smooth together. There would have been no rough with me, said Mr. Whittlestaff. I do not believe in such a life, said John Gordon. A woman should not wear a stuff gown always, but the silk finery and the stuff gown should follow each other. To my taste, the more there may be of the stuff gown and the less of the finery, the more it will be to my wishes. I am not speaking of her gowns. It is not of such things as those that I am thinking. Here Mr. Whittlestaff got up from the bench and began walking rapidly backwards and forwards under the imperfect shade on the path. You will beat her. I think not. Beat her in the spirit. You will domineer over her and desire to have your own way. When she is toiling for you, you will frown at her. Because you have business on hand, or perhaps pleasure, you will leave her in solitude. There may a time come when the diamonds shall have all gone. If she is to be mine, that time will have come already. The diamonds will be sold. Did you ever see a diamond in my possession? Why do you twit me with diamonds? If I had been a coal owner, should I have been expected to keep my coals? These things stick to the very soul of a man. They are a poison of which he cannot rid himself. They are like gambling. They make everything cheap that should be dear, and everything dear that should be cheap. I trust them not at all, and I do not trust you because you deal in them. I tell you that I shall not deal in them. But, Mr. Whittlestaff, I must tell you that you are unreasonable. No doubt. I am a poor, miserable man who does not know the world. I have never been to the diamond fields. Of course, I understand nothing of the charms of speculation. A quiet life with my books is all that I care for, with just one other thing. One other thing. You begrudge me that. Mr. Whittlestaff, it does not signify a straw what I begrudge you. Mr. Whittlestaff had now come close to him and was listening to him. Nor, as I take it, what you begrudge me. Before I left England, she and I had learned to love each other. It is so still. For the sake of her happiness, do you mean to let me have her? I do. You do? Of course I do. You have known it all along. Of course I do. Do you think I would make her miserable? 
would it be in my bosom to make her come and live with a stupid silly old man to potter on from day to day without any excitement would i force her into a groove in which her days would be wretched to her had she come to me and wanted bread and have seen before her all the misery of poverty the stone coldness of a governess's life had she been left to earn her bread without any one to love her it might then have been different she would have looked out into another world and have seen another prospect a comfortable home with kindness and her needs supplied would have sufficed she would then have thought herself happy in becoming my wife there would then have been no cruelty but she had seen you and though it was but a dream she thought that she could endure to wait better that than surrender all the delight of loving so she told me that she would think of you poor dear i can understand now the struggle which she intended to make then in the very nick of time in the absolute moment of the day so that you might have everything and i nothing you came you came and were allowed to see her and told her all your story you filled her heart full with joy but only to be crushed when she thought that the fatal promise had been given to me i saw it all i knew it i thought to myself for a few hours that it might be so but it cannot be so oh mr whittlestaff it cannot be so he said with a firm determined voice as though asserting a fact which admitted of no doubt mr whittlestaff what am i to say to you you what are you to say nothing what should you say why should you speak it is not for love of you that i would do this thing nor yet altogether from love of her not that i would not do much for her sake i almost think that i would do it entirely for her sake if there were no other reason but to shame myself by taking that which belongs to another as though it were my own property to live a coward in mine own esteem though i may be the laughing-stock and the butt of all those around me i would still be a man to myself i ought to have felt that it was sufficient when she told me that some of her thoughts must still be given to you she is yours mr gordon but i doubt much whether you care for the possession not care for her up to the moment when i received your note i was about to start again for south africa south africa is no place for her nor for me either with such a wife mr whittlestaff will you not allow me to say one word to you in friendship not a word how am i to come and take her out of your house she must manage it as best she can but no i would not turn her from my door for all the world could do for me this too will be part of the punishment that i must bear you can settle the day between you i suppose and then you can come down and after the accustomed fashion you can meet her at the church door then you can come to my house and eat your breakfast there if you will you will see fine things prepared for you such as a woman wants on those occasions and then you can carry her off wherever you please i need know nothing of your whereabouts good morning now do not say anything further but let me go my way End of chapter 21 Recording by Arnold Banner, Thurmond, North Carolina